0: Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for uh, just the opportunity that we have to, to gather here. Uh, Lord, as we uh, start our or our continue our time of worshiping, really, uh, Lord, we do want to lift up our dear sister Rachel to you, who is in the hospital right now. Um, Father, I pray that you would uh, give her peace uh, peace for the medical procedure uh, to be there and all of the doctors and tests and various things that need to happen. Father, I pray that you would um, just supernaturally touch her, Lord, and, and, and ease her heart um, through the procedure. And just as a, as a single lady that lives alone, we, we pray that you would ease her heart uh, concerning uh, just the affairs at her house, you know, having a bunch of little pups and, and things that she has to care for. We pray that you would um, just uh, assure her that that's all taken care of, and we thank you for those that are covering for her. And we do pray for this afternoon when she goes into the procedure that uh, you would give skill of hand and wisdom to the doctors, that they would be able to uh, identify the problem and and, uh, to quickly resolve it um, without too much of a setback. And so we pray this in Christ's name. I also do want to pray, Lord, for our study in the Gospel of Mark, Lord, we ask that Your Spirit would lead us; that He would illuminate the meaning of the text, uh, the story, which is really a familiar story. And we ask that You would help the its familiar familiarness to us, not to to lose the impact of what's happening here. We we pray, Father, that You would um, allow us just to imagine the scene, the story, um, with our all of our senses. You for recording the details that you have recorded for us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're in Mark chapter 14. We're looking at verses 53 to 65. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, temple made with hands, well, excuse me. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, "'What further need do we have of witnesses? "'You have heard the blasphemy. "'How does it seem to you?' "'And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. "'Some, some began to spit on at him and to blindfold him "'and to beat him with their fist "'and to say to him, "'Prophecy.'" "'And the officers received him with slaps in the face.'" Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would, Lord, help us to have a clearer picture of who Jesus is. Lord, help us to have a clearer picture of who we are and our need for Him. And we thank you for your word, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. All right, so we're slowly coming out of lockdown. You know, like things are freedoms are starting to come back, and and as I as I come to this story, um I'm kind of reminded of one of the things that during the lockdown that that I want to not mean our family, but Grace and I. So early in the lockdown, remember, we started kind of when it was like pouring rain and cold, and then we got to where it was really hot. Well, during that cold and rainy time where not only were we locked down, normally in Valley Center, it's like, well, we have land and we can enjoy it. But it's like, oh man, we're locked down and we're locked in. And it's like, what do we do? And And so I was talking with uh, Alden from the church, and and during one of the times I'm like, "Oh, how are you doing?" and 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 she uh she says, "Oh, I've been watching uh, Perry Mason on Amazon Prime." And I'm like, "Perry Mason's on Amazon Prime?" And she's like, "Yeah, but you got to subscribe. You got to pay like it's like a couple dollars a month or whatever." And I'm like, "Oh, that was a great show." And so I I kind of went to investigate Perry Mason and it turned out you got a 30-day free subscription which which I did. And so then Grace and I watched a, a couple episodes of Perry Mason. I forgot what a great show it was. You know, back, back then they let the storyline really develop and they gave more time. And, and so th- I, one of the things that I was sort of, my memory of Perry Mason is that it was always a courtroom scene. And I thought it was like the, the real courtroom scene, but it turns out that what it is, is it's, it's the preliminary hearing where they're trying to determine if there's enough evidence that, that they can then take it to trial. And so grace and I just we 've really enjoyed watching these shows, and the reason I bring this up is because in today 's story in jesus 's trial this is not tonight in the story um, what 's happening in today 's text is really a preliminary hearing the The Jewish leaders are trying to uh, see if they can get a substantial case against Jesus that they can then bring to the real trial. With the Roman courts, um, somebody I read this week—I I can't remember if it was Charles Swindoll, it might have been Charles Swindoll or somebody else—it doesn't really matter. But he sort of pointed out that that many Christians were were familiar with the execution of Jesus, but things get a little bit blurry um, from the time he's taken into custody until the cross. Like, how did things unfold? And I think with uh, each writer of the Gospels, sort of gives a different angle on it. And so when you piece them all together. There are two trials, and each trial has three hearings. And so today we're looking at the religious trial, and Mark's kind of taken all of these three trials and sort of uh, put them together into one scene. Um, By the time we get to Mark chapter 15, which will be two weeks from now, uh, we see that in verse 1 of chapter 15 we read, uh, early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and the scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation and binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. And so uh, we know that Jesus is taken into custody. We'll call it two in the morning. You know, who knows? It's, it's, uh, it's somewhere between one and three, one and two in the morning. And we know that all of the religious trial is concluded basically immediately after daybreak. And so during the night, what's going to happen is the first person he sees is Annas. Now Annas is the former high priest. Normally the high priest was sort of a a lifelong appointment, kind of think of the Supreme Court. Um, But this guy Rome didn't like. And so Rome had Annas removed from his position as the high priest And they installed, and and I I don't know, out of my memory, I don't remember who installed the next guy, but the next guy, Caiaphas, was Annas' son-in-law. So they're related. And and so what happens this night, he first goes before Annas, who is uh, referred to often as the high priest, but technically he wasn't the high priest. Like Rome didn't recognize him as a high priest anymore. However, the people of Israel did recognize him as a high priest. And so he goes before Annas, the high priest, then he goes before Caiaphas, the acting high priest, who was his son-in-law, and then finally he, he goes before the Sanhedrin, which is effectively their supreme court. It was composed of 71 individuals, um, and they're the supreme court of Israel, and they're the ones who give the ruling that Jesus was to go before Pilate, and that happens in, in chapter 15, verse 1. So, so basically, in our story, today we look at the, the preliminary trial, the religious hearing. Uh, chronologically, what's going to happen is the next thing we're going to do is, is go to the trial before Pilate, the, the civil trial, and there's three accounts there. Sort of sandwiched in between here, what we're going to look at next week is sort of uh, Peter and his denial of Christ. So kind of wedged in the story, running sort of concurrently uh, to the trial tonight, we look at the story of Peter and his denial. But the civil trials, the way that goes down, this this is, uh, since the Romans had the, the power and authority to actually have Jesus executed, the trial goes before Pilate. Pilate hears it. He doesn't really want to he doesn't want to deal with this religious squabble that he has in, in his mind. The, you know, the world has descended upon Jerusalem, and he's trying to just get rid of, of this issue. And he doesn't want the problem sort of on, on him. And so then he sends it to Herod, who's sort of like the, the district manager, the, the ruler that is over that area. And Herod basically, doesn't want to deal with it either, so it basically gets spit back to Pilate for the third, um, the third hearing. And that, that whole series of three events, by the time we get to Mark chapter 5, verse 15, all of those are handled very quickly within the gospel of Mark. So hopefully that gives you some, some clarity of the flow of events. Um, as we look at the very first verse here, verse 53 we read, they led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. So here it is. It's two in the morning, three in the morning, middle of the night. Suddenly all of these people are available to gather. They have them together. Uh, they're in the uh, the high priest uh, building where he lived, his residence, and I mean, it was huge. There's a courtyard out there. We'll see that Peter's down there. And we see that after he was taken into custody, they basically take Jesus, they deliver him to the high priest, and they begin this trial with all of the people necessary to be there. And it's a very rushed scene. Uh, uh, not, not, nothing legal is, is happening, but they are fudging the laws in order to, to make this happen. Uh, the Bible Knowledge Commentary says this about the setting. We read this. It says, This hasty night meeting was deemed necessary because, number one, in Jewish criminal law, it was customary to hold a trial immediately after arrest. Roman legal trials were usually held shortly after sunrise, so the Sanhedrin needed a binding verdict by daybreak in order to get the case to pilot early. With Jesus finally in custody, they did not want to delay proceedings, thereby arousing opposition to his arrest. And so they're they're speeding this whole trial along. This is they're they're on the cusp of a, of a holiday. Um, it's the Passover, a big holiday. So this isn't even just like a three day weekend. This would be like a four day weekend, and it's the last business day. So they're trying to get this case to pilot. It also kind of explains why Pilate and Herod are like, ah, we don't want to, let's just not deal with this. So my strategy when I get jury duty, so first the letter comes in the mail. And if you read the fine print, there's a, you know there's a date when they say when to be there. But if you read the fine print, there's really like a two-week window when you're allowed to be there. And so my strategy is always to show up on a Thursday or Friday. I forget like I forget which is their last day. I think they've gone away from Friday jury duty. So then I go to Thursday. And, and my strategy is they don't want to go to trial right before the weekend. And so I'll go down, and then they, so far it's been good for me, they've released everybody. I know I'm going to get jury duty on Monday. I'm going to get the letter just because of what I talk about this week. But my strategy's always been to, like, I'm going to go down on a Thursday. By lunchtime, they dismiss everybody because none of the attorneys want to go into trial over the weekend. And I'm just really trying to help them because with my background, first, I'm a, I'm a police chaplain. I'm a pastor. I a, 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 was in the military for 12 years. None of these things bode well for trial. So I'd just be wasting their time to go through the jury selection. So I'm really trying to do the government a favor and I know I'm going to get jury duty on Monday, and I'll take that as a sign from God to go in on Monday just to, because my conscience will be bothered, but we'll cross that bridge when we get there. Um, and, and so, but because of all of those kind of truths, this is what they're, they're butting up against. It's not just that they have Jesus in custody. This is the Passover, and they're on the last day. The Passover is about to begin, and so they want to get this whole thing buttoned up so they can get Jesus there. But none, like, as they're trying to abide by the law, they're not following any of the laws. Like, if, if this was a capital punishment crime, they were supposed to delay the trial so that there'd be some time for more level-headedness. There'd be time for the, the person that's defending himself to sort of get his ducks in a row to make his defense. He, Jesus had every right to an attorney even during this time to protect him. All of these things, there's a whole laundry list of things that they violated in this process. And so this is the scene that's being set up. Now verse 54, which we're not going to spend a whole lot of time this week on because it's going to be the focus of our study next week, but we learn in verse 54 that Peter had followed him, Jesus, at a distance uh, right into the courtyard. So he's, he has access to the high priest courtyard. And John tells us that John was known by the high priest. And because he had this relationship with the high priest and uh, the the people that worked there and were responsible for him, he could get him into this close proximity. So John got Peter in. And so right into the courtyard of the high priest and he was sitting with the officers. So this is the the law enforcement um, um, there. Warming himself at the fire. Now, I'll, I'll expand on this point later, but I do want to point out that this fire is significant. Um, in the Gospel of John, John uses a very uh, particular word here, and he uses the Greek word for charcoal. Uh, kind of like imagine a bonfire at the beach, you know, like the, the, the you know, there's one thing, a barbecue. Um, There's fire that's from a gas grill. There's fire from a briquette. And then there's something about the wood when it gets down, and you can see the, the glowing pink and the little flames, and it's actually from wood, and it's a word charcoal. And John only uses that word twice. He uses it here when Peter is in the courtyard about to deny Jesus, and then he uses it again at the very end after the resurrection that Peter in both of these places is warming himself by the charcoal failure. So we see Peter's failure, and then we see Peter's uh, restoration back into ministry. You know the scene where Jesus with him, uh, Peter, do you love me? And he asks that question three times, and by the end of it, Peter's weeping and brokenness, and then we see Jesus restoring him. It's a, it's a beautiful scene. For, for our purpose, I want the fire to be there sort of by imagination, um, warming himself by the fire. This this tells me that there's something about the early morning hours for anybody that's ever had to work the graveyard shift and you're outside. there's I don't care where you are in the world. You could be in the tropics. And there's something about that like 4 to 6 a.m. in the morning before the sun. And I mean, I can just start shivering. I've been in Hawaii, and it's like that time out in the bush. like And it's like, it's so cold. It is so, like, why is it so cold? And so it's dark. Peter's cold. They're all sort of around this fire, you know, like Peter's a friend of Jesus, but he's around the guys that have taken him into custody. So he's trying to stay anonymous. He's warming himself. And inside it's dark. I imagine that they have some torches or however the the lighting situation was. But it's still dark, eerie, cold in in the cloak of, of darkness. And verse 55, we read now, the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. That, that tells us their motive. All the way back in Mark chapter 4, they have been scheming, concocting a plan to try to take Jesus into custody and to try to execute him because Jesus was infringing on their, their power. And so now... They've got somebody to betray Jesus in the middle of the night. They have him in in their midst. They are now in this preliminary hearing. They need certain things to fall into line in order to basically take the case and to move it on. Uh, The first thing that's a danger and a lesson here is they're they're not seeking the truth. They've already made up their mind, and they're simply going through these motions trying to reach the conclusion that they need, and I think that there's a huge danger in that. And we're told that they were not finding any. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony wasn't consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Remember, Jesus would prophesy about this, about his body, the temple, that they were going to destroy it, he would go down, that he'd be resurrected in three days. And so they're giving him them all of these things that Jesus had said, but we're told in verse 59, not even in this respect was their, consistent, their testimony consistent. So the high priest is there sort of like managing the crowd. There's just so many questions. Where did these people come from? It's two in the morning. They've had Jesus in custody for about an hour. Like, did they, you know, Anna just read, so uh, Anna read Shackleton's book about, you know, it's a great story, and so I've been hearing a lot about Shackleton and how he recruited guys, you know, you put posters up, and these guys, you know, like, hey, you're going to die, there's no money, there's nothing, there's just like, you might have be, live in infamy kind of thing, you know, <laughs> like, like there'll be glory in that respect, and people flooded him. So I don't know if they had, like, murmuring going around, uh, they're looking for a way to condemn Jesus. They had to be subtle about it. They, they, there was enough that Judas went to them and sold out for his 30 pieces of silver. There were people showing up looking to get paid, um, but they're coming forward, and they're like, oh, yeah, 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 I got, I got testimony against him. He said something about destroying the temple in 30 days. You know, the great, it's the second temple that Herod built, that's, in, that, that's what we see today, That took, I think, I don't know, it was a lifetime that that took to to build this thing. And he said he's going to destroy it. And in three days, he's going to raise it up, like, miraculously. And whatever they were saying, nothing was consistent. And there was nothing that they could bring before Pilate that was worthy of death. I, I also wonder if there were people that were going with the wrong testimony. Like the last guy we saw, blind Bartimaeus, did he show up? Hey, guys, I was blind my whole life. He came by, and now I can see. I was crippled. I was a, I was a paraplegic, and, and, and now I can walk. Like, w- whatever was happening, by the end of the witnesses that they have, the high priest loses his mind. He is furious. And so instead of sort of observing the courtroom, it's like the judge who's not there to sort of uh, to prosecute the case Or to defend the case, the judge exists to sort of be the, the, you know, the referee between the two groups and to make sure that the law is sort of maintained. But now in verse 60, the high priest stood up and he came forward and he questioned Jesus saying, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? I think he's trying to get the lens to come into focus. Okay, they're saying all of this Stuff and it's not making sense. Will you clarify for me what they're saying so that I can condemn you? This is the exact opposite of the Miranda rights. You know, uh, every, whenever a law enforcement makes arrest, I've seen it a whole bunch of times and they say, you know, you have the re- right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law. So from all my law enforcement friends, I've learned that when you get arrested, I didn't say if. When, you know i 'm just teasing I, probably not appropriate during this time of, uh, uh, but like it 's like whatever you say it 's going to be used against you like keep your mouth shut that 's when we say you have the right to remain silent keep like keep your mouth shut, just wait till your attorney shows up. this guy 's doing the exact opposite he 's like, talk, just run your mouth, say something because as you speak, as you try to defend yourself. You're going to give me something that then I can bring before Pilate. And they're running out of time, right? The, 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 the clock's rising. The sun is rising. He can see pre-dawn. He knows his, his opportunity to get this guy before Pilate is like a small, small window. But we're told in verse 61 that Jesus just stood there, and he didn't answer. He stood silent. Verse 61, he kept silent and did not answer. And again, the high priest was questioning him, saying, are you the Christ, the Son of God, the Blessed One? Matthew puts sort of a, a punctuation mark on what he says. And Matthew, the same scene, what Matthew records is, but Jesus kept silence, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. You know, bringing it back to Perry Mason. There's a number of times during Perry Mason, during the lockdown when I watched it, when one attorney is asking some questions and the attorney will then, as he gets frustrated, kind of step towards the stand. He's like, do I need to remind you, Mr. So-and-so, that you're under oath right now, that you've sworn before God that you are giving true testimony? And this is what the high priest is doing. He's saying, you are under oath right now. And I adjure you by the living God to answer this question. And the question couldn't be any more focused, any more pointed, any clear. He says, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? You only see this phrase one other place in the Gospel of Mark and, and really in the Gospels. And, I'm, and not for trivia's sake, but, but but back in Caesarea Philippi, remember, when Jesus asked the guys, hey, who do people say that I am? They say, oh, say, some say a prophet, some say Elijah, some, some say this, some say that. And then Jesus said, well, who do you guys say that I am? And what did Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and, and so this... It's so laser-focused, It is so pointed. I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people t- come to me and tell me that Jesus never said anywhere in the Bible that he was God. There's a number of examples where he did, but there, this, it doesn't get any clearer here. This is exactly what the high priest is ask, asking him, His answer is the very thing that provided the information to take his preliminary hearing to trial and ultimately which would take him to his execution. And so when he asks this question, Jesus finally responds. And he says, I am. And just with that, that's all he needed to answer. Everything else that Jesus says has nothing to do with really the question that's being asked of him. The high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Living God? And Jesus says, I am. At that moment, Jesus said enough if he wasn't the Messiah to be condemned. But Jesus isn't finished. He continues by quoting from Psalm 110, verse, seven, verse 1, and from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where he says. And you, I think he's looking directly at the high priest and pointing this part of the answer straight at the high priest. He says, and you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds in heaven. So first he says, yes, I am the Christ. Second, looking at the high priest, what he says is this Psalm 110, back early when Jesus first makes his entry into Jerusalem. And I think it was in Mark chapter 12, I wrote down here, yeah, Mark chapter 12, he goes in. He's attacked by the religious leaders. They say a whole bunch of stuff at him. Finally, Jesus then asks them a question. Hey, how is it that King David refers to the Messiah, his son, or, or referred to his son as being his Lord? And they were all stumped. This is the verse he used. And then he goes on to say, referring to Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, that the Messiah will come and stand in his glory. And in effect, what he's saying He's confessing that he is the Messiah. And number two, what he's saying to this guy, this high priest, he says, you know what? You think I'm on trial before you, but the reality is you're on trial before me. And a day is coming when you're going to stand before me and be judged. (sighs) Did Jesus ever claim to be God? He absolutely did. And if you're not convinced now, look how the high priest responds. The high priest responds, verse 63, tearing his clothes. The high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him deserving of death. And so first he tears his clothes. This is a a physical sign showing sort of uh, his mourning, that what he heard, this blasphemy before God was so great that he needed to immediately... Uh, tear his clothes. I, 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 I imagine more than mourning that there was anger, that he is so angry with Jesus that he wants, him, he wants him killed. And so then he's not addressing Jesus anymore. He looks at this crowd of the 71 individuals that are there and whatever witnesses, but I don't think the witnesses actually mattered. And he says, what further need do we have of witnesses? He's like, we don't need witnesses anymore. They can go home. And he looks at these people and says, "You heard the blasphemy." And what I what I imagine him saying here is sort of, I don't know if you guys have ever been in a situation, and I'm always thankful. I've really only had this situation when there's been a witness with me when something happens. You see something that happens, and you think, "Oh, did that? Did they just say that, or did they just do that?" Um, Just a couple weeks ago, it was the day that the barbershop opened back up, or the day after. I waited for like six hours. It took a bunch of runs to Escondido and back, and on the final run to go down there, I come from Felicita, and I make a right turn onto Escondido Escondido Boulevard, heading north to Dell's Barbershop. As I make that turn, I see a guy walking down the street, and there's another guy riding a bicycle. So if I'm walking down the street like this, a bicycle comes past me and when the bicycle gets where the camera is, this guy out of his pocket pulls out a gun follows the guy and the guy on the bike has no idea that it happens and then he puts the gun back in his pocket and keeps walking. And I'm like, "What did I just see?" <laughs> and I I'm like, I've been waiting for 3 months to get a haircut. <laughs> Do I just keep going? And I'm like, I can't, I know what I saw. And so I flip the U-turn and I call, I have the direct line to dispatch, and I'm like, hey, dispatch, it's gunner, and and because I'm a chaplain. And I said, this is what I saw. And I give them the description. And then I'm immediately going, Did I really see that? And I'm like, this is gonna be so bad if I have every single police officer descending on the 7 Eleven at Felicita and Escanito Boulevard. And I'm like talking them through. They take the guy in custody. And then I have another seal buddy that 's a police officer, and then finally, after all of they get him in custody, he calls me and he 's like, "Hey, gunner, so what happened and i 'm like, "Can you tell me one thing? Did the guy have a gun on him that he like, did he he 's like yeah he had, a, he had a a pretend gun and like a huge knife. This was a huge call, and so I talked it through but there 's that like panic did did that just happen and I, And when I see this, when he says, "You heard the blasphemy, how did it seem to you I, I, I hear the high priest going, did I just hear what I heard? This guy claimed to be God in our midst. Am I making this up? And they all said, you absolutely heard that. This is worthy of death. And they condemned him deserving of death. They condemned him to death when they should be bowing down at his feet and worshiping him in awe. And then we're told in verse 65, some began to spit at him there's only been one event in my life where I saw somebody get spit on. And it was gross. In my notes, I didn't know how you could spell loogie. I don't know if that's a real word. But back when I was in the Navy, we had this long diving operation. It was like a—it was just a training off in San Diego Bay. It was like same hours. We, it was like a long dive, like like th- two or three hours. And we got back to the SEAL Team 3, chain. Like the dive tables, we're working on our dive rigs. And thankfully, it wasn't me. But the guy next to me, there's something about the rigs that we use that like just produces an amazing amount of snot. And and so I hear the guy do this as I'm working on my rig and trying to clean it all up. I hear this like you know that you all know the noise. I can't replicate it right now, but because it was a productive. And he gets this all in. He turns over his shoulder and he hawks this loogie. And what we didn't know spying on us was a warrant officer who's like a top dog that was basically, he dropped in to spy on our operation just to see how we were doing as a platoon. He happened to be walking by and this loogie, like from his forehead down, like, like I immediately like was like dry heaving was like a response of like, I can't believe that just happened. And then there's like the, the new guy. It's like, he's going to kill you. Like, he's going to, like, kill you for what you just did. But the guy was just as cool as cucumbers. He's like, I didn't see that coming. Have a good night, gentlemen. And he just walked off, and it was just gross. And the reason I bring up that story is, like, I don't want us just to gloss over. Some began to spit on him. Like, this is the, the most insulting, disgusting thing that you can there's probably worse, but this is a top-tier grossness of what you can do to somebody. And then after this, they, they blindfolded him. It, it's one thing to take a punch when you can see it coming, when you can flinch, but as soon as you're blindfolded, you don't know which way to turn, which way to flinch, which way to get away from it. And now that he's blindfolded, they began to beat him with their fists and say to him, prophecy. The other accounts tell us, like, as they were hitting him, They're saying, hey, tell us who just hit you. And the officer received him with slaps in the face. Like, what do we do with this passage? This is just like gut-wrenching. As I have worked through the story and looking at this high priest, in this high priest, he represents what I've seen in so many cases throughout the the centuries where there's, you know, quote-unquote religious men who are Absolutely evil and terrible individuals claiming to be the voice piece of God. As a pastor, I think, like, for, like my walk into Christianity was pretty naive. I don't have a lot of church experience other than being a pastor, really. But as a pastor, I've seen so many individuals that have been so hurt by religious people. And when I read this high priest and how he's accusing Jesus, I, all I think is like jerk face. Like, he's just a jerk. Like, he's just mean and cruel and using his power. And then I look at Jesus, and Hebrews 4.15 keeps coming to mind, where it says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in the whole passage goes on about how wonderful Jesus is. This high priest was a jerk. But we don't have a high priest like that. We have a high priest that's been tested in every way, and like we are, and he's compassionate for us, he's empathetic towards us, he loves us, he's gracious to us. Jesus is a better high priest than this individual in the story. We have a great need for the Savior. Every time we're tempted with sin, or so often with sin, I should say, we're presented with sin, and our knees buckle, and we give in, and we cave. We are in desperate need of a Savior. And Jesus, under this pressure, didn't buckle. He didn't give in. His beating begins here. It goes all the way through the cross. He doesn't buckle. He doesn't quit. He doesn't give in. He endures the wrath of God for our sins. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, That he, the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, this is a transaction that God provides for us by grace, meaning that we didn't do anything to deserve it. We receive it through faith. We believe that Jesus did this for us. It's, it's wonderful. I think I have time. We're going to have to really skedaddle. But so often we're afraid to, to trust Jesus because is he reliable? Um, I'm pretty sure that everybody, I don't want to ask anybody, but I assume that everybody here has ridden in, in an elevator. I'm going to kind of summarize the story. But it turns out that when they first created elevators, it was a horrific event. Like they, people would not ride in elevators um, because when they first started, I, I get the picture, it was like a piece of plywood and there was like a rope and they kind of like, like lowered and raised people from it. And if that rope gave way, that was it. There was no like precautions. And because of the untrustworthiness of, of elevators, building heights were capped at six feet because they couldn't get people to walk higher, not six feet, six floors, higher than six floors. And, so in 18 let me look at it. So in 1854 this guy, Elisha Otis, he was an inventor. And I guess he's he he's not the inventor of the elevator but he's the one that made elevators usable because he invented the brake. And so the it wasn't the World's Fair but he was in Manhattan there's an exhibition that was like the World's Fair. He had this elevator up, up, pretty high up and basically every hour on the hour what he did is he stood on the platform and he told his assistant cut the rope cut the rope, and then the thing starts falling, and then the brake catches. And basically, when he demonstrated the reliability of his braking system, suddenly he was able to sell elevators. So, like, I think he sold 300 that first year. And then, uh, yeah, with this demonstration, Otis quickly sold his first three elevators for $300 a piece. Today, New York City has about 70,000 elevators, and it's estimated that the equivalent of the world's population travels on an Otis elevator, escalator, or moving walkway every three days. And the reason I bring this up is because like that elevator break that we trust, we walk on an elevator by faith. I don't know if you're like me, but I always go like, what happens? Well, what happens is is this break is pretty reliable. And like the break that didn't fail, Jesus didn't fail, and he's reliable for us to trust him with our souls into eternity. And So my prayer is that if you haven't received Christ as your Savior, that you would place your faith in Him. And if you have placed your faith in Christ, that you would lean on Him into eternity. With that, let's stand. I'll pray, and then uh, we'll sing the one song, I Feel Comfortable Leading Us In. So let's let's pray. Uh, Father, I do thank You and praise You for this day. I thank You for Your Word. I thank You. For Jesus, Lord, I thank you that he came, he stepped into our mess of this world with sin, um, that he lived out this perfect life as an example for us, as for us to follow. He lived this life as a lamb for us. And so, Father, I pray for each person that's watching or here listening. Uh, we pray, Father, that you would help us To truly trust in Jesus for salvation. For those of us that have trusted in him for salvation, I pray that you would help us to walk by faith, trusting in him. We thank you that our salvation is not based upon our works, but it's on the work of Jesus on the cross. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.